All right, we're going to get going. We got um, two chapters we're going to cover, chapters six and seven. So I'm going to pray, and we're going to go get going on this lesson this morning. Father, we thank you for this morning. Thank you for the beautiful weather we're enjoying. Thank you for the way you provide for us in so many different ways and shower us with your grace and your mercy. And uh, we thank you for this church. We thank you for this room that we can come and we can study God's word together. Thank you for Mark and making the breakfast and uh, Lord, that we can come and just uh, enjoy fellowship with other men who love God and who share a common bond in Jesus Christ. I pray, Father, that you would speak mightily this morning, that you would uh, use these two passages to um, speak into our hearts as we begin to talk about sanctification, what it means to grow in Christ's likeness. Father, may it become a reality for every one of us that we make it a priority in our lives to grow increasingly more like Christ, not in our own strength, but in the power of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we love you, and we give you this time together, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I've debated all morning whether I was going to do this or not, but I think I'm going to do it, and I'll bear the consequences. Um, we're, we're, we're now getting into passages where we're covering two chapters like we did last week. And um, I, I heard a, um, a guy give a talk this last week. I was listening to it on my uh, phone. And uh, he said he was preaching through uh, Psalm chapter 119. If you're familiar with Psalm 119, it's the longest chapter in the Bible. And he said he got up and he started to preach a sermon. Then he, he, he was just going to piecemeal and pick certain verses out and, and just read those verses because he didn't have enough time. And then it dawned on him right when he was doing it, he, he was not reading the Word of God so that he could say his words. And God convicted him and he said, you know, we're going to read God's Word because God's Word's inspired and my words are not. And he read the whole thing, and it left, left himself very little time to teach his lesson or his preach his sermon. But that kind of convicted me. So um, as we look at chapters 6 and 7, they're full, they're long. Um, but rather than me skip over the Scriptures, which is the inspired Word of God, and me rush to tell you what I want to say, we're going to read the Scriptures. So if you have your Bibles, open them up to Romans chapter 6, and we're going to read it. And I want you to just listen um, and read, read along in your Bibles. And I want you to look for, in particular, um, the different tenses that he uses, past, present, and future. Because that's going to be critical to what we're going to talk about this morning. So, ch- chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. 
So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law but under grace. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. But do you, but you do... Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin which leads to death or of obedience which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were freed in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of these things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives." But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of, spirit, of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous and good. Did that which is good, then, bring death to me? By no means. It was sin, producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure." For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. 
Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Now that's a lot, right? It's, uh, it's jam-packed, and we could literally take months to dig into these two chapters, and I've got whatever time I have left. What I want us to really wrestle with is, is what is he talking about? What is, what is the point He's been talking so much about justification over the last uh, bit that we've been together. And now we're moving into sanctification. We're moving into the, f- the fun part, the positive part. Uh, not that justification is not fun, but in order to reach justification or understand justification, you've got to understand sin and the need that you can't justify yourself. And we've kind of established that over the last few weeks. Now we're making a transition. But I want to go back and finish what I didn't finish last week, and that's the end of chapter 5. Real quickly, Paul in those verses, verses 12 through 31, is talking about Adam as compared to Christ. The first Adam, the second Adam. Adam's sin is essentially what he tells us. And he passed on that sin nature to us. Ever since Adam sinned, and God holds Adam responsible because Adam came first, Adam was given the command not to eat of the tree. His wife did eat of the tree, and he was standing right next to her when she did it. Didn't stop her. As a matter of fact, he took the fruit as soon as she gave it to him. He's responsible, and his responsibility, his condemnation, his guilt, his shame, all got passed on to us. And, and, you know, before you get smug and go, man, if I'd have been Adam, I wouldn't have, I'd have handled that. I'd have handled Eve, you know. No, you wouldn't have. You'd have done exactly what Adam did. So we've, we've got his sin nature. We, we've been imputed, given by him to us, his guilt, his condemnation. So all men are under that condemnation. Sin brought the curse of death. But what he tells us is, Jesus is kind of the antithetical Adam. He's the opposite of Adam because he brought life. Adam brought death. And death was a reality before the law. Remember, the law wasn't going to come for a long time, centuries. And yet people were still dying. All the law did was kind of solidify, here's what you're doing that is resulting in your death. Here's the commands. Before the law came, people were dying all the time, right? Because the condemnation for sin is always death, ever since the fall. Physical death and spiritual death. And people were dying all the time. And the law just said, you want to know why? Here's why. You're breaking these commandments. So 
You had Adam who brought death. You have Christ who brought life. It says, just as sin, verse 12 of chapter 5, just as sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, so death came into the world, it spread to all mankind because all have sinned. And he's already talked about that, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned. Every man has sinned. There's not a sinless person on this planet. There's only one sinless person who ever lived, and it's Jesus Christ, which made him the perfect sacrifice. So all have sinned. Death reigned from Adam all the way to Moses. Why does he mention Moses? Because Moses is when the law came. The law didn't bring death. The law just gave the reasons death was taking place. You're breaking the commands of God. So death was a reality for every, every person from Adam all the way down to Moses. Adam was a type of Christ, the one to come but from a negative perspective. See, he was made by God. He was sent by God. Now, that's where Jesus and Adam are different. He was made by God. He had a birth date. That was his beginning. Jesus doesn't have a beginning because he's divine, but he took on human form. He came as a child. He was born, and then he lived, but he lived a sinless life where Adam didn't. Adam didn't do what he was created to do he sinned. Jesus came and he lived sinlessly. And so he talks about the trespass, what Adam did, and the free gift of Jesus Christ. So he compares those two things. Free gift, Christ, what he did, given by God for you and I, and the trespass of Adam. Both of those things are important. He says, for if many died through the one man's trespass, and much more have the grace of God and the free gift, Jesus Christ, by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abound for many. So Adam, when Adam sinned, what did he do? He infected us all. And everybody since Adam is under the curse. Everyone since Adam has had to die or is going to die. Every man in this room is going to die unless the Lord comes first. We're all under the curse. But the free gift that Jesus Christ brought, he brought life. He brought something different. The free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin. For the judgment following the one trespass brought condemnation. Every man is under condemnation, every woman. But the free gift brought what? Justification. See, justification and condemnation are opposites. Condemnation is what we all deserve. Justification we don't deserve. And it's what is given to us by God through Jesus Christ. And when we place our faith in him, one man's trespass brought condemnation. One man, Jesus Christ, his sacrifice on the cross, his act of righteousness by dying on the cross brought what? Life. So you see this juxtaposition between Adam and Christ. One brought condemnation, one brought justification. See, God created Adam, and he made him in his image, and he put him in the garden, and he said, you can eat of any tree in this garden, just don't eat of that one. What's the one he went for? The one that God said no to. God sent Christ to the earth, and what was the immediate, once he started his ministry, what was the immediate thing that happened to him? The temptation. The wicked one came, just like it came to Adam. And the wicked one tried to get him to do what? Disobey God, not trust God's word. Adam gave in. Jesus didn't. Jesus rejected it. 
Jesus withstood the temptation. Jesus didn't sin. And as a result, because of what he did, we can now be justified, move out from under condemnation and have justification. You can be made right with God by Jesus Christ. Adam screwed it up. Jesus makes it right. But you've got to put your faith in him. You've got to believe in him. He goes on in verse 17. For if one man's trespass, death reigned, the free gift of righteousness brings life. So death reigned because of Adam, but what reigns in my life and your life because of Jesus Christ, the free gift? It's righteousness. Now, when we get into the verse, uh, chapter 6 and verse 7, that's really what he's talking about, guys, is that in your life and in my life, we are right before God. We are righteous in his eyes because we have been justified. But here's the rub. You have to live like what you are. That's what these two chapters are all about. I have to have righteousness reign in my life. See, I can't just walk around going, I'm right with God. I've been justified. My name's written in the Lamb's Book of Life, and I can do whatever I want. And see, a lot of us live that way. We would never say that out loud because it sounds stupid, right? But we live that way. We do what we want to do, and we live with the attitude, well, he has to forgive me. But see, he's talking about if you now have an opportunity to let righteousness reign in your life instead of death. And what's sad is every person in this community, every person on this planet who doesn't know Jesus Christ, in their life, death reigns. It controls them. It rules them. They're all going to die, not only physically, but spiritually. We have the ability and the responsibility to let righteousness reign. So he goes on in verse 18. So one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. That does not mean all men will be saved. It's available to all men, but you have to avail yourself of it. You have to believe in Jesus Christ. By one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. And my guess is that the majority of the men in this room have made that decision, have placed their faith in Christ, and you have been made righteous. But guess what? You need to live like what you are. You need to live that out in your daily life, which is, again, what these two chapters this morning are going to talk about. See, the law came in to show you your sin. That was the purpose of the law. The whole reason the law was given, were men sinning all the way from Adam to Moses? Yes. How do we know? Because they were all dying. Now, they may not have known exactly what they were doing wrong. They, they may not have known why they were dying physically and spiritually, but they were dying, and it was a sign that they were sinning. The law just came again to say, here's the reason you're dying. Here's God's will for you, for all men, given to the Jews, but it was really for all men to live in a right standing with him. The law just came and showed us our sin, and it just increased your sin, right? We just read that in chapter 7, and we're going to talk about it this morning. You know, if, if I tell my kids when they were little, if I said, don't touch that, what would they do? Touch that. Hey, don't ride your bike in the street. What's the next place I find them? Riding their bike in the middle of the street. Didn't I tell you not to do that? Yeah, but it just, it's, it's flatter. It, it, there was no cars, Dad. You know, they start justifying themselves and rationalizing with me. See, sin increases, or the law increases sin because as soon as somebody tells you don't do that, what do you want to do? 
Oh, I'm going to do that. It just wells up in us, right? And so it increases sin. The law increases sin. It doesn't make you stop sinning. It actually makes you want to sin. But yet, what does he say? Grace abounds. God's patient. God's kind. God sent his son. And so now we move into chapter 6. So he set this up. Adam, Christ, death, life. Live like what you are. And he says, what shall we say? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? I I love how Paul asks these questions. They're kind of rhetorical questions. But they're questions that people are obviously asking. He knows they're going through their minds. And and he, he just knows how people think. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Do you you see the kind of illogical logic in that? If I sin, grace abounds. So I guess if I sin more, I get more grace. And he goes, no, no, by no means. What are you, an idiot? That's the paraphrase. But he's, he's telling them, no, that's not how this works. You don't just keep on sinning so you get more grace. He's giving them a warning. He's going to talk about two extremes, and they're really covered in these two passages. One is self-reliant activity. This is the one we're addicted to because we're men and we're Western men. We're American-born men, right? We, we believe in self-reliant activity. Dad, Gummin, I'm going to do it. I'm going to pull myself up by my bootstraps. And this is basically sanctification by self. I will make myself more holy, Dad, Gummin, if it kills me. And we wear ourselves out. And so he's warning against that. And then God-reliant apathy. Now, I'm hoping most of us don't struggle with this. But this is that let go and let God. Have you ever heard somebody say that to you? Maybe you've said it. Just got to let go and let God. And it sounds so spiritual and it is so non-biblical. Because there's an attitude in that that I don't have to do squat. Because God does it all. I don't have to read my Bible. He's just going to pour it into me somehow. I'm going to become more spiritual because what God began, he's going to finish. That's what the scriptures say. I don't know where it says it, but I've heard it preached before. Therefore, let go and let God. I don't need to go to Bible study. I don't need to read my Bible. I don't need to pray. That is God-reliant apathy. And the church is rampant with people like that. That's why in a church this size, this is a good group of guys, right? And we replicate this on Thursday night, but this is a fraction of the men who go to this church. Now you say, well, they go to BSF. They may. Even if you add it up, all the guys who go to BSF from this church, all the guys who go to this Bible study and the one tonight and and who may go to another Bible study somewhere else, it's a fraction of the number of men who actually attend this church on a regular basis. Why? Because most of them are God-reliant, apathetic. I don't need to do anything. I'm good to go. But here's what we should be. God-dependent, active. I got to be active. I got to be doing something. And it's that idea that he who began a good work will complete it, as it says in Philippians, but I have to play a role in it, dependent on him. And that's really what chapter 6 and chapter 7 is all about. And so he's going to start talking in these verses about He's going to start using past tense, present tense, and future tense. And like I said when I read it, look for that because it's really important. We live totally focused on the present. Well, some of us live way too much in the past, what we used to be. 
you know, we, we dwell in the past, but most of us, we just focus on the present and we don't think about the future. God thinks about all of it. Why? Because God is timeless. He's not bound by time. And so Paul's going to give us some lessons in tense as he goes through these. He says, you have been baptized into Christ Jesus. You were baptized. Those are past tense. You have been baptized. You were baptized. I'm not going to get into whether he's talking about water baptism, the spirit baptism. I mean, I've read so many commentaries that take chapters to deal with that. That's not the important point to me, at least this morning. What's important is he's saying that something has happened in your life. He's writing to Christians. You have been baptized into Christ Jesus. You were baptized into his death. You were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. Why? Past tense. These things have happened to you in order that you might walk in newness of life. See, he's writing to Christians. He says, okay, you believe in Jesus Christ. You have placed your faith in Jesus Christ. You have been justified by God because of Christ. Now walk in newness of life. See, here's why past is important. Not to dwell on all the stuff you've screwed up, which is where we tend to go. No, you need to go into the past and realize that at some point in the past, whether you were 7, 17, or 70, whenever you placed your faith in Christ, something happened. You were baptized into Christ. You were buried with him. You died to sin at that point. It's a reality. Therefore, in order that, you might walk in newness of life. Why did that happen? So that you might live differently. See, you have been united, past tense, with him. And you will be, future tense, united with him in what? His resurrection. See, as a Christian, you, you've got to kind of keep your head in a swivel, so to speak. Looking back, what did he do? Looking forward, what's he going to do? And if you always look in the present tense, you don't get it. You, you lose the, the, the grasp of all that's happened and is going to happen. And then you start wondering, why is this happening? Why won't this stop happening? Well, maybe... He's trying to sanctify you and get you ready for what's going to happen in the future. He did something, he's doing something, and he's going to do something. We have to live with our head on a swivel, looking forwards and backwards. He says, we know that our old self was crucified, right? Past tense. For one who has died has been set free. See, what you've got to keep remembering is going back and saying, when I place my faith in Christ, certain things happen. I died to my old self. I was buried with him. My old nature was put aside. I have been set free. See, things have happened, but we don't live with this reality. If we have died, once again, with Christ... See, he's talking past tense. Now he says that this body of sin might be brought to nothing. Why did he die? Why did all those things happen? So that this body of sin, this, this thing called the flesh, might be brought to nothing. Now, in that statement, there's a present reality and a future reality. Will this body of sin really ever stop wanting to sin in this lifetime? No. No. I know this body of sin. 
It craves sin. It lives for sin. But my new nature craves something else, which is what chapter 7 talks about. But there is a day coming when this body of sin will be done away with and I will receive a new, redeemed, glorified body and it will never crave sin anymore. It won't crave the donut, the last donut in the box that I don't need. It, it, it won't want to lust. It won't drive me like it tries to drive me right now. See, there's a present reality that should be becoming true in my life, not in free, perfection, but one day it will be, and that's what motivates me. So that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. See, I don't need to live enslaved to sin. I can be enslaved to sin, right? So can you. And one day I won't be, future. But right now I don't have to be, I choose to be. I choose to give in to sin. I choose to let this body of sin control me, just as you do. But I don't have to. Why? Because I've died to sin. I was buried with him. Things took place in the past when I placed my faith in him. And it, then it says in verse 8, and we will live with him. See, what has to motivate you is the belief that there is a day coming when we will live with him in perfection without sin. And if you don't think about that, guess what? This thing called life on this planet becomes so disillusioning so disappointing because you'll go for about a week and you're having great quiet times and you're leading your family and you feel real spiritual and you've been going to Bible study and then bam, you hit the wall. Something happens. Your faith gets tested. You start getting disappointed and you start, God, what is going on? I'm not the Christian I'm supposed to be. I'm not a very good father. I'm not a very good husband. I'm not a... And, and the enemy begins to attack and you start to doubt and you've taken your eyes off the reality of the future. That's where your hope is. That's where... We're, we're shooting for. It's that, not this. This is a transition period. So you've got to look at the past, the present, and the future. Verse 11, you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. See, part of this is you and I learning to think about these realities. I am dead to sin. I have died to sin. I don't have to live in sin anymore. I am alive to God. I have to consider those realities. Every day in my life, i got to remind myself, when you sin, don't beat yourself up but realize, you know what, I don't have to do that. I died to that. I don't have to let my sin nature control me anymore because I'm alive to God. And he's going to talk about, we're making a transition from him really just belaboring justification to moving towards sanctification, which is simply just growing in Christ-likeness, holiness, righteousness. So I want to just compare these two things so you get them straight in your mind. They're not one and the same thing. Justification is not sanctification. But they are also not independent. You can't separate the two. They go hand in hand. You can't say you're justified, made right with God, and not begin to be sanctified, not grow in Christ's likeness. They have to go hand in hand. So justification is basically a judicial term. It's a law term, and it's... God declaring you righteous. righteous. Why? Because you placed your faith in Christ. You now have his righteousness. It's a, judicial, it's a statement. Sanctification is moral. It has to do with you're being made righteous. You've been declared righteous. You're also being made righteous through, through this 
thing called life. One is instantaneous. God declares it as soon as you place your faith in Christ. He looks at you through the blood of Christ and goes, you are righteous. You have a right standing before me. Sanctification is ongoing. This is the part we hate. This is the painful part, right? Going through this life, trying to grow in Christ's likeness when everything is against you and you feel defeated and you feel like you're not getting anywhere. One has to do with your position. The other one has to do with practicality. I have been declared righteous. Now I got to go live like it. Why can't I just, just be righteous? See, God, you know, I would love if God had saved me and just taken all the sin away. But that's heaven. God didn't save me and take me. He left me, which I've always thought was kind of a cruel joke, but it's part of his divine plan. He, he wants me to grow in righteousness. It's very practical. One was imputed to me, just like sin was imputed because of Adam. Righteousness was imputed to me by God through Christ. The other one is imparted to me. How do I grow in Christ's likeness through the help of the Holy Spirit, which is chapter 8, one of my favorite chapters in the entire book of the Bible? One has to do with our standing. The other one has to do with our practice. I am righteous before God. Now i got to go live like it. Which one do we struggle with? Well, both, to be honest. We really don't believe we're righteous in God's eyes because we don't feel righteous and we don't live righteous, but then we also don't practice our righteousness very well. And so that's why these two chapters, that's why I put them together. Even though it's a lot of material, they do go hand in hand. Justification has, you've got to understand that you are justified. I am right before God. If you don't believe that, then you're going to spend your life trying to please God through works. You'll live like God is the angry judge. He's the disappointed father. He's got his arms full of going, golly, why did I ever save you? You can't do anything right. When are you going to be like your sister? When are you going to make straight A's? I'm so sick of you bringing home B's in your report card. See, that's not God. And if you don't understand that you are just in his eyes, you are right in his eyes, and if you died right now, you go to be with him, you're going to really wrestle. But sanctification is basically behave like you are justified. See, if God, think about this, God looks at you, and I'm looking at all you right now, and, and I look at you and go, man, not impressed. You know, and you're looking at me going, well, we're not either, and you shouldn't be. But I look at you, and I go, okay, nothing that impressive. Some of you are handsome, some of you are not, some of you are old, some of you are young, some of you are fit, some of you aren't. God looks at you and goes, you know, because you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you are righteous in my eyes, despite yourself. In spite of yourself. And that should motivate you that he would do that in spite of you, that I want to live like how you see me. That's why when you have kids, one of the best things you can do for your kids is encourage them and point out their strengths rather than point out all their weaknesses. When my youngest son played select soccer, he was always really good. He was always the high scorer on his team. He was a captain. He was very gifted. And every time he played a game, and I went to every stinking game that he played in, every game he would come off the field and go, Dad, how did I do? You know what I would say? Well, you did good, but... And I, I never heard myself say that, and he told me years later how much it irritated him. Why couldn't you just say, Dad, Dad son, you, did a, you, you played well? But I always had to say, well, you know, 
Yeah, you scored three goals, but there were there are two you left out there. And he felt so defeated. I would have been so much better off if I said, you know what, man, you, you left it all out in the field and you, man, I'm so proud of you and you worked so hard. See, this idea that if I really understand how much he loves me and that he sees me as righteous, it will motivate me to work harder and to behave like how he sees me. See, if I, if I encourage my kids and say, man, you are, I'm so proud of how hard you work and I'm so proud of your work ethic, and, but I was always finding flaws and fault. And I still struggle with it. But see, God looks at us and he goes, you know, you're righteous. And that, may, that should motivate me to say, you know, man, I want to live like what you say I am. I don't believe it. I don't see it. I don't feel like it. But you know what? I'm gonna, with your help, I'm going to try to live like how you see me. That's what sanctification is all about. And so all throughout these two chapters, he's, he's using the past tense and the present tense. He's also using something that theologians call the indicative and the imperative. Now, don't, don't phase out on me. Okay? Don't just go, oh, here we go. This is all this means. He's going to give you conditions, how things really are, and all indicative means it's indicating the fact of our new condition. This is what you are. This is who you are in Christ. Here's what it is. You're dead to sin and you're alive to Christ. That's basically what he's telling us. You're dead to sin, you're alive to Christ. Imperative is telling us, okay, how do I respond to that new condition? Imperatives are commands. Things to do. And we gravitate to imperatives, right? I told you that early on we started studying Romans. Everybody in this room loves for somebody to say, give me three steps to a better life. I don't really care what the book says. Just give me the bottom line. What do I need to do? The problem with Romans is it doesn't lend itself to that. It's, it's not three steps to a better life, three, five steps or five keys. or It's not four, five, six, seven, anything. It's you are dead to sin, alive to Christ. Therefore, here's how you should live. That's what the imperatives are. What to do and what not to do. But you've got to keep in mind it's all based on the fact that you have been justified. The what to do and what not to do is not to get justified. It's because you already are justified. Does that make sense? So here's your standing. And here's why I think that's important. It's the only reason I brought up indicative and imperative, not to impress you. Now you can go home, impress your friends, impress your wife. It just means that if I don't constantly remind myself of who I am in Christ... I will not live properly in this life. I'll be always trying to make myself what I already am. Works. I'm not right with God. I've got to make myself right with God. I'm not righteous. I have to make myself righteous. No, you are righteous. Just live like it. Be what you already are in God's eyes. So what does he do? Here's the imperatives. Don't let sin reign in your mortal body. Don't let sin control you. And chapter 8 is going to say, you have, you have been given, and I have been given, the Holy Spirit to make this possible. You do not have to let sin reign, control your body. Don't present your members to sin. In other words, don't take this body and go, you know what? Here's what I want to do. I want to lust. I want to watch that. I know it makes me think wrong thoughts. I know it makes me do things I don't want to do and dwell on things, but that's what I want to do, and I'm going to let this body control me. Don't present these bodies to sin. In other words, present yourselves to God. 
Give yourself to God. Do things that God would want you to do. It's a way we're to live our lives. Present yourselves as members to God. You belong to Him. You're no longer a slave to righteousness. He's going to talk about you're a slave to God. And then he goes on, so are are we just to keep sinning? So grace may abound because we're not under the law. Hey, I don't don't live under the law. You've probably heard people say that. I'm a Christian. I live by grace. I'm not under the law, so I I can do whatever I want. I can eat what I want, do what I want. And there's certain truth to that, but it can be abused just like anything else because he says, once again, by no means, no way, don't do it. Bad logic, don't go there. Because he says, again, past tense, this is what's happened. You were once slaves to sin. That was who you were, but you have become, present tense, what? Obedient from the heart because of the Holy Spirit to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. You have now in you the ability to obey the law not to become righteous because you are righteous see i have have something i never had before christ i have the power of the holy spirit i have a power resident within me that allows me to do the things that god calls me to do to not lie to not cheat to not steal to not covet to not lust i do have that power now do i avail myself of it not as often as i should Because my sin nature wants to make me go back to the old way. But that's why I have to keep reminding myself, wait, 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 wait. No, no, no. I died to that. I was buried with Christ. I am now alive in Christ. I have a new capacity. I've become obedient from the heart. I have been set free from sin. And if you do not believe that, you will not live like that. In other words, if you still think you're a captive... I read an article the other day about the Civil War and after the the slaves were emancipated and even after the end of the Civil War, most of the slaves stayed slaves because they couldn't understand freedom. They didn't know anything different and they just stayed on the plantations and they just kept doing their job because they didn't know what freedom looked like. And that's the problem with many of us as, as Christians is that we don't really believe we've been set free from sin so we just keep living in it because that's all we know. And God says, no, 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 I didn't call you. I didn't redeem you. I didn't save you. I set you free from that so that you can live differently. You are now a slave to what? Righteousness. Live righteously. You are righteous in my eyes. Live like it. Live like who you are. You once presented your bodies to, as members or the members of your body as slaves to impurity, but now, now in the present tense, present them to righteousness, leading to what? Sanctification increasing holiness more like christ see it's a change in attitude it's not just action we're action oriented right just just go do something we're impulsive no you got to go back and say wait 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 i am right in god's eyes i have been buried with christ i have been redeemed i am a new creature i'm a new creation therefore i need to live like it and chapter eight will tell us how with the help of the holy spirit You have been set free from sin. You've become slaves of God. The fruit now is a different kind of fruit in your life. And it leads to sanctification and ultimately what? Eternal life. Remember, never forget the future. You will get disappointed in this life. You will fail in this life. But don't forget, it's not over yet. There's a day coming when you will have eternal life. And with it, a new glorified body and a sinless Christ-like life. 
And we got to keep concentrating on this. So it has to be, our faith has to be a future-focused faith. And our desire for sanctification, for holiness, is to be motivated by what? Our belief and our future glorification. One day, I'm going to be like him. And because of that, I want to live like him right now. I want to live like who I really am. I want to live like an heir of the kingdom, a son of God, right here, right now. Is it hard? You bet. Is it sometimes difficult? Yes. Will you fail? No doubt about it. But our actions, my actions, need to be based on a belief regarding our present reality, who I am in Christ, dead to sin, alive to Christ, and a future certainty. I will be with him, and I will be made holy someday. That drives my actions on this earth. I'm dead to sin. I'm alive to Christ. I have been justified as you have been. I will be glorified. I will live with him for eternity. Those things have to drive our behavior. If you don't think about them, it's not going to happen. So in chapter 7, he goes in and he's going to give himself as an example. He says, so what do we say then? That the law is sin? No. By no means. Once again. Now I want you, I'm going to blow through this pretty quick, but I want you to notice. I'm not going to read this because I already read it, but look at all the eyes. There are those who say Paul is, Paul is not talking about the, the, the Christian life. He's talking about his life when he was a Jew. Or he's not talking about himself. But I have a real hard time with that in particular because look at all the eyes, the personal pronouns. All throughout this passage, starting in verse 7, I, I, me, I, I, me, 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 over and over again. Who's Paul talking about? He's talking about Paul. And I firmly believe that Paul is talking about his experience as a believer having come to Christ on this earth. Why? Because it sounds just like my life. It sounds just like your life. Because what does he keep saying? See, look at this. Look at all the personal pronouns. He says, I keep doing what I don't want to do. I want to do this, but I keep doing this. I don't want to sin, but I keep on sinning. I'm so frustrated. Do you ever get frustrated with the Christian life? Man, tomorrow morning I'm going to wake up and I'm going to have a quiet time for the first time in weeks. And what happens? The next morning you wake up, you wake up late. Man, I've got to get to work. I'll do it tomorrow. And then sometime during the day you go, I did it again. I meant to get up and have my quiet time and I didn't. See, Paul's describing my life and your life in this earth as we move from just thinking about justification to sanctification. How do I grow How do I move into this? He goes on. It's no longer I who sin. It's what? It's the sin that dwells in me. I still have this sin nature. I hate it. I hate that I'm prone to sin. I wish I could stop. But you know what? I don't sin near as much as I used to. And I don't say that as a point of pride. It's just reality because of the spirit within me. I don't struggle with a lot of the things I used to struggle with. I don't have the addictive habits I used to have. I have some, believe me. But God is at work in me, and I have to remember that. He goes on and says, I know that nothing good dwells in me, what, in my flesh. See, he's, he's basically saying, guys, you have a flesh that's alive and well, a sin nature, and you have your spirit, your life, your soul, your mind. And those two things are always at war. Galatians tells us they're at enmity. The spirit within me and the flesh within me are always at war with one another. So again, he just keeps going on and on about the I, the me, the I, I do not, I don't do what I want to do, and I do what I don't want to do. And then he basically says, who's going to deliver me? 
wretched man that I am. Who's going to deliver me from this? And again, we've read these verses, so I'm not going to read them again. He just goes on in verse 24, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Who will deliver me? That should be your cry every day, but what's the answer? What's the answer? He already gave it to us. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. You have been saved. You have been redeemed. You have been buried. You have been made alive. You have a new spirit, a new nature, the Holy Spirit living within you. You already have the answer. You have the power. You have everything you need that you don't need to serve the flesh anymore. So what's his point? I'll wrap it up with this. He's describing my life and your life. The already and the not yet. Verse 14. The law is spiritual. It's good. It's holy. But guess what? I'm unspiritual in my flesh. I do have a spiritual nature, but I have a fleshly nature. He says in verse 15 and 16, I want to do what's right, but I do what I hate. I have good desires in me, verse 17, but sin dwells in me too. These are realities in this life. I desire to do good things, but I lack the ability in and of myself. I want to do God's will, but I keep doing evil. I want to give, I don't want to, I want to give into the spirit, but I keep giving into sin instead. So guys, what do we do with this? What's the point? Where do we go with this information? Well, this is where I want you to go with it. Because next week we're going to talk about the Holy Spirit. But I want you to think particularly about verses 7 through 25. If you need to go back and read it, in what ways do you relate to what Paul's describing there? This life on earth that can be so frustrating. I want to do right, but I keep doing wrong. I want to give into the spirit, but I give into my flesh. I want to do these things, but I don't. Wretched man that I am. What's the answer? I think the answer was given in chapter six. You got to go back and realize what has been done, who you are in Christ, the indicative, what's your standing. And then you got to think about, okay, then how do I do it? through the power of the Spirit, but there are things that we need to do. There are things that we need to do. How do you think having a future-focused faith is going to help you live the Christian life right here and now? And keep in mind, I've given you the the handout for next week, the blog for next week, chapter 8. I encourage you to read it. Chapter 8 is the key. It's the it's the middle of the book, basically, and it, it's going to give us the key to living the life we've been called to live, and it's the Holy Spirit. So here's your question. You dig into it, and let's see where God takes us over the next week. Father, I pray for the tables. I pray for the men. Speak to them. Open up your word to them. May they be open and honest with one another, and especially with you, that, Father, we do struggle with the Christian walk, and we do struggle with sanctification, but it's because we don't remember what you've done, and we don't think about what you're going to do. So open their eyes and help them to see. And I pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.